Welcome to the All for Inclusion podcast. This is the place where the conversation starts. You will hear plenty of stories on how disability has impacted people from school through to work, the struggles they have faced and how they've overcome them. There will be lots of tips on how businesses, society and people can become more inclusive. Here's your host, Scott Whitney. Welcome to this week's All for Inclusion pod. My name's Scott Whitney. Um, it's a podcast designed for people with disabilities, people caring for people with disabilities, people who offer services to people with disabilities, and also for businesses and society to uh, to learn about inclusion in general. Um, today, I am joined by Shirley Woods Gallagher. Hello, Shirley. How are you? Good morning, Scott. Great to be here on the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much. Um, Shirley, do you mind just um, introducing yourself and, uh, and telling the listeners a little bit about you? Yeah, sure. So my name's Shirley. And I'm proud to be autistic. I consider it as being part of my identity as much as being a woman is. Um, And I was very late diagnosed at the age of 49 during lockdown one. And and, and tragically, the week my dad died of COVID on a COVID ward. So he never got to know, but I'm sure it wouldn't have made any difference to him. He would just have been proud of me. Um, And my day job is I'm an exec director of a multi-academy trust of special schools, which includes an awful lot of neurodivergent children and young people. Excellent. Thank you. So um, you said you was, uh, you was diagnosed um, aged 49, which is, which is obviously very late. And, <laughs> and it's, it's kind of, it's, it's tragic, isn't it? That um, people live to 49 without, without knowing that, there is a condition well i would just i would just wouldn't describe it as a condition because i'm born this way it's just me Mm. but for me it's kind of like i knew i was different when i was four i knew absolutely i was different to my peers at four i knew i like talking to we used to call them i'm so old in the 1970s the dinner ladies the lunchtime organizers i used to enjoy talking to them more than my own peers um And I was a, you know what I mean, a very grown up little child, shall we say, and a very mature four year old, an extremely accident prone, difficulties with the reading scheme, most ineligible handwriting you could shake a stick at. Um, And clearly used to run out of the cinema screaming every time you went anywhere. I remember vividly going to the Doctor Who exhibition in Blackpool and screaming the place down. And it wasn't so much I was frightened of the Dalek. It was, what the heck is that noise? My ears are bleeding, yeah. <laughs> running out. So I knew it was different at four, but we had no framework for understanding that either at home or at school, or even in the 80s when I was at secondary school, high school, that this would explain my difference for a, a girl or a young woman transitioning to adulthood. So I just grew up thinking, I'm always told I'm weird. I'm always told I'm strange. I'm always told I'm different. And I took that narrative on. Yeah. And I took the narrative. And then I sort of grew up with depression and anxiety is the best way to describe adulthood. And that's how it's how it framed it for me. 
and he was um, <clears throat> working within the SEND sector and reading early diagnosis of much younger girls that I was starting to go, oh, I think I might be autistic. Oh, I think I might be autistic. Oh my God, I'm autistic. Yeah. How did I not know this? How did I not know this? And then went through the whole um, assessment process, which was difficult for anyone like diagnosed because you then have to reframe your past, don't you? Yeah. And try and make peace with it and make peace with your school life make peace with your community life, make peace with maybe the way you were parented because your parents just didn't know. Uh, but at the same time, um, then now accept that it's a really great self-navigation tool. I feel like I've lived two lives, the life where I didn't know. And so there was a struggle behind it that was masked, masked out to the public at large. And now I get to live this life and go, oh, wow, you understand yourself. That's why I'm freaking out in a train station. This is why I hate hospitals. This is why I don't do airports. Yeah, and yeah. that's fine. That's fine. These are things I can do to help to help myself in those contexts. And it's brilliant because it just feels like a brilliant well-being tool. So I think, you know, anyone listening to this, you could be 79. Go and get yourself late diagnosed. It will make a difference, I promise you, in a positive way. Excellent. Excellent. And you mentioned about um, sort of masking. Do you find that you wear a mask less now or do you not wear a mask at all i would say i do a bit a bit of both now so in some respects i don't so if i'm say walking around the supermarket i won't name a brand yeah <laughs> and, and i hear music playing i can't help but my shoulders doing a little shimmy do you know mm. what i mean and now in the past i'd be thinking i can't do this i'm in a supermarket this is wrong i don't care <laughs> I will happily dance around the aisles. If anyone looks at me strange, they'll smile and wave back like the penguins in Madagascar. Hello. Do you know what I mean? I'm enjoying myself. Isn't it nice to enjoy our lives? So I don't mask for stuff like that at all anymore. Um, and I, I literally cannot mask my absolute joy and excitement at anything. I, you know, I clap, I flap, I skip. Do you know what I mean? And I just think, wow, isn't it amazing? My whole body can show you how happy I am. Why would I hide that light under a bushel? But for other things where I think, God, I, this is this is socially awkward, like doing sales type things. You know what I mean? I was running a I was running a, a stall where my son is in a band in the high peak um, at the weekend, and I was like, oh God, I'm put in charge of sales for cakes and and tea, and I'm I'm not good at this small talk. And then I think, well, this is where I put in my acting role, my masking role. I almost don't feel like myself, and I go out there and go, hi, please, would you like some cakes? Let's do a deal on cakes with like a cup of tea and I just go into it and then I think do you know what I actually think lots of neurodivergent people mask as well do you know what I mean yeah, yeah <laughs> so yeah. I kind of think maybe it's an adult strategy if, mm. overall and, and that for me let's not pathologize the masking too much because I'm conscious of when I turn it on and off now yeah no and that's that's good is knowing when you can and and cannot do it and you use it almost like um you know, like a cape, can't you? And uh, it gives you a superpower as to to when to do it, when not to do it, to make the best out of every situation for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when you was in in school, then did you have any did you have any sort of coping mechanisms? Um, I suppose in primary school, um, I. I kind of I really struggled because although I was cognitively like very bright and you know what I mean and verbally very articulate I struggled massively with the reading scheme so I never finished the reading scheme 
never yeah. stopped me getting a PhD when I was older or a degree. So if anyone's listening, thinking, oh no, my child's struggling with kipper and chip, don't sweat it. I got through it. Yeah. Um, so so that was that was difficult in the prime years, but secondary school was just a living hell. Mm. But the good news about the, the 80s is that you were allowed to go home at lunchtime if you wanted to. So that was my saving grace at every lunchtime because I only lived 10 minutes from high school. I used to walk home, you know, watch, watch in order, rainbow, neighbours and the Sullivans and go, <laughs> and go back to school again. Um, because you certainly, I mean, I got horrifically bullied in year seven and year eight. By year nine, people who were generally nice to me were starting to avoid me as well because um, the bullies, I've been such a target for bullies that no one wants to be around that. Um, and so it was just, ex- I, if I think of high school, I just think of it as being an exceptionally lonely period of my life yeah. um, where it was all about what well, you're bright and you're in the top sets and, and perform, perform even higher academically. Whilst I just felt absolutely God awful, miserable and couldn't ca- cope with the sensory overload and I look back now and I think, yeah, how many times do you have to keep changing class and walking around and going to a different class and getting reorganised for something else and all the noise of the transition uh, between classes, as well as just, you know, it being acceptable to be really horrible to girls who are a bit different. Yeah. Um, but it was what it was. It, I can't change it. Yeah. Uh, what happened, happened. And uh, at least I got to go home at lunchtime. And at least it was only five years because there was a six, there was, a, you know, we, there was no sixth form college at my high school. So I went somewhere different, which actually at that point then, although I found that difficult um, because it was such a large place, it was an FE college, you were at difference was embraced more. Yeah. The teachers really engaged with you. There were people who were doing A-levels, wanted to be there and to do A-levels. And there were so many of us who'd come from so many different secondary schools into this college that there was no set allegiance so I almost didn't almost didn't have to make too much of an effort to make friends everyone was doing that hi hi I don't know anyone I don't know anyone and it was a bit like oh bloody neck I don't know how to do this I don't know how to do this but but I was a big I was a big thing into like big social justice campaigns and a big thing at the time in that bit of the 80s was sort of like the, the original start of the climate change stuff um, and anti-apartheid movements because you know apartheid still existed then in the mid 80s so I just joined lots of campaign groups went on loads of marches and found a common interest with my passion for social justice with all those other people which was quite refreshing and you know you don't fit in because you don't like five star and you don't like this band and you're a bit weird and yeah <laughs> you know what I mean I suddenly had a tribe if you like to hang yeah, around yeah. with Oh, brilliant. That's so, uh, so it really kind of flourished then. So when, I mean, I know you mentioned earlier about um, sort of depression and, and anxiety. When did, yeah. did that come from high school or was that a bit later on? No, that started in high school. Um, and I, when, in, in the 80s, of course, there, wasn't, there weren't services. You know what I mean? You'd go and speak to teaching staff and they'd go, but <laughs> they'd say the strangest things in the 80s, like, but you're a tall girl and you're bright. Mm. You'll be fine. <laughs> what does that even mean? You're tall and you're clever. Therefore, you can't be depressed. You're like, oh, okay. Um, and there, there just wasn't a framework for um, going to see anyone, talk to anyone. It was deemed as, quote, unquote, a weakness or being soft to show any vulnerability, whether at home in the community or at school. 
So I just kept it all locked inside and then fell apart in my transition to adulthood. Yeah. So I developed an eating disorder in my 20s um, just because I was so overwhelmed and completely unprepared for that transition into the workplace. Yeah. And I didn't know it at the time. I look back at it on the time and I go, that's why it was hard. That's why I struggled. I have self-compassion for what I went through. But my head was running at 100 miles an hour going, I don't understand the social cues and clues of an office environment. I don't understand this going out after work business. I don't understand the small talk. I do my best to write lists and relate back to someone. Is this what you want me to do? Is this the clarity of what you want me to do at work? Yeah. Or what's this changing landmass of, you know, dating, relationships, uh, leaving home for good, not just go, leaving home to go to university. And it was, it was just a car crash. And what my, sort of my saving grace was actually joining local government um, when I, just as I turned 30. And Manchester City Council at the time was massively into regeneration, difference, diversity. I remember having a social model of inclusion around disability then. Do I mean, 20 years ago, it was really pioneering. I remember thinking, that's an exciting place to work. And people loved me. People loved the fact that I thought differently. They embraced me fully. And for the first time, I felt celebrated in a workplace and completely accepted. Mm. But it took until 30, knowing I was different at four. Yeah. And was that then when um, things started to get get better when it came to like eating disorder and yeah, depression? Yeah, totally. totally. I mean, I, st- I still, like with most, uh, you know, with, with some people who are neurodivergent, struggle with eating certain textures and certain smells and, and that kind of thing. And I still, if, if I'm in a really, really busy office environment, I won't eat lunch because I go into hyper-focus and it's like, I can't, I can't be bothered with this artificial break in the day when you go and eat carbohydrates mm. do you know what I mean and like, yeah. it just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't work for me so when people say to you would you like to come for lunch part of me thinks no but I can come for a coffee let's go for a coffee let's have a chat or a cup of tea D- dead down for that but not really for the eating because I'll just end up with indigestion yeah and it just won't digest properly and then I'll feel rotten all night and it's just not worth it so yeah. it's not an eating disorder these days but I do have difference in eating and yeah. a busy working environment okay so kind of um if we flip things right around then um obviously doing the job that you're you're doing now you've, you've got a good insight into um what schools do and what the council do to help people when they're younger with diagnosis what age and, and, and what age do you think you would have been picked up in if you was going through today? And also, um, what support do you think they would have provided for you straight away? I'm not wholly convinced I would have been picked up massively because um, I'm, I'm not going to disclose the family members that I have who were neurodivergent. That would be for yeah. them to be out. But I have family members who are older than me and younger than me. And we've all been late diagnosed by any terms, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I'm not wholly convinced I would have been picked up because I would have been the, quote, quite quiet, shy girl, as in not making eye contact, so it's, it, it's written as shy in your school reports, who's, who sits there, keeps her head down and ploughs out work of high academic quality. Yeah. So even if they could tell I wasn't particularly happy, 
I think they would have just gone, well, she doesn't need an education health and care plan because she's academically tick, tick, tick. And um, she sometimes seems a bit quiet, a bit whatever, but we'll just, we'll stick on a wellbeing workshop or something that we're putting on generically for the whole population. But also I don't think, um, <clears throat> there's not a lot of information given to new parents around upskilling them to understand neurodivergence and difference from a young age either. And I kind of think my strongest clues were from when I was tiny, but yeah. parents weren't always told. So I was the I was the baby toddler who'd climb out of the cot once the side was up straight afterwards. I was the toddler that fell out of the climbing frames, had no worries about any danger, and went face first, snapped off my front teeth removed and a, and a broken nose. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? <clears throat> I, I was the toddler that would only eat beige foods. I was the one where my mum said, even when I barely um string sentences together as a as, you know as a toddler would literally be pushing people away going I do it myself I do it myself I do it myself and not like liking people in my face doing things for me and they yeah. would have been the earliest indicators but I just think they would have thought oh she's the youngest of three gosh she's super independent our show and she's really confident around her gross motor skills <laughs> we'll leave her to it so I I'm not convinced even now I would have been picked up, but I might have picked myself up earlier, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think it's more likely I'd have been a 13, 14-year-old girl all over Google and YouTube and (laughs) looking things up and watching videos of other young people talking about their lived experience and going, that's me. And then going to my parents, my teachers going, that's me. I think that's how it would have happened. So do you think, um, sort of based on what you said there, that, that social media is a really good tool then for teenagers to to almost self-diagnose. I think it's incredibly uh, powerful and affirming because I just think, uh, I mean, secondary schools are so different now, aren't they? You know what I mean? My son's at secondary school. I'm so proud that so many of them walk around talking about their neurodivergent diagnosis and, you know what I mean, their gender identity and their, you know, in their sexual orientation. They're so much more free and confident at a young age you'd have to know that about yourself to understand that's what your difference was and that's where I genuinely and you don't get workshops at school on neurodivergence do you that's the young people who know that about themselves so I think yeah going on YouTube and watching all those fantastic young people you know like people like Purple Ella or others who've done videos out there and, and web pages and social media accounts and it it just must be so powerful. And I found it helpful watching things going, oh, yes, that was me at 60. Oh, yeah. wow. How interesting. How interesting. But I'm happy to talk about an older ageing autistic population because there's nothing out there for the older age ranges unless you are someone who's been in residential services or with you know a really complex diagnosis, which potentially could include learning difficulties as well. There's, there's just kind of nothing in my bracket, which is why I'm kind of out, out now. Yeah. Someone has to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So have you had any, um, or have you attended any support groups or, or peer groups when you're saying there's no one, you know, in that sort of bracket for yourself? Um, has there been any support groups that you could attend or anything? No, where I live, you get diagnosed and then you kind of like, good luck, thumbs up and off you go. Mm. <laughs> Um, and I think because it was lockdown one when this happened for me and everyone was at home so much, um, that's why I went online so much and, and, and educated myself, ordered books, watched podcasts, videos, 
um, and, and anything to try and educate myself. And then as soon as the lockdown restrictions began to lift the summer afterwards, um, I then set up my own sort of late diagnosis support group where I live and, and work with some clinicians locally just to I'm, I'm putting my own Facebook posts out on the vaccination page for where I live as well, because that's yeah. a big population, isn't it? And through that, set up my own um, late diagnosis support group to support one another. And quite a lot of us, it transpired, <clears throat> had been, you know, diagnosed during the lockdown period. And all of us were a bit shocked. You get diagnosed and it's like, well, there you go. You've got your, you got your, you know what I mean, your identity, your diagnosis, however you want to, you know, process up yourself. Um, <clears throat> and off you go. And it's like, yeah. but I need, I need to make peace with the past. And there's, there was nothing around how you would have those conversations with, as you're older, your own family, so your own partner, your own children, to explain what it means, how you would have those conversations with your parents and the siblings and the family you were raised with, and absolutely nothing out there about how you would raise it at work. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. Um, so I've since then I've been working with a lady called Mary Secchi, who chairs the Greater Manchester Autism Consortium around, well, what are we doing around um, employers? What are we doing to support employers around this? Uh, and what can we do in this uh, particular space? So I have been involved with the development of the new Greater Manchester Autism Strategy, which is being launched next month. And I'm proud to have written a little introduction to it as well as someone who's out out in a senior leadership role in GM saying, look, we, are, we say in Greater Manchester, don't we? We do things differently here. And mm. we do things differently here because we are diverse, because it is our strength. And that includes autism and neurodivergence. That's yeah. my big call to arms. And, and there's like a lot of businesses that I feel or, or, or I think of that are scared of people being different. Um, and, and, and I look at that and I, I always kind of question it because, you know, if you hire a team of people that think the same, you're always going to get the same results. But if you hire people who think differently, whether it be that they think outside the box or, or whether it be that they're neurodivergent, you're going to get a lot of different ideas. You're going to be able to break down barriers a lot quicker and and also you've got the fact that 20%, 15% of the population is is neurodivergent. So you need to be able to to relate to who is what is potentially 20% of your clients. I, I agree. I mean, the latest research that I've seen is that what there's an estimate that it's one in 44 of the population are neurodivergent. One in 44, that's a huge number. Mm. That's a huge number. And I agree completely. If you keep doing what you've always doing, you'll get what you've always got. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you're, you know, the whole point is that is that businesses, whether public sector, private sector, is that they work in a dynamic environment that changes. Therefore, you need to have agile leadership. Therefore, you need to have people who think differently. Um, you know what I mean? One of my uh, big jobs that I um, did in Greater Manchester was to write the devolution deal yeah. for early years for school readiness, which Andy Burnham as GML then took on as one of his key priorities, which was fantastic in post. Now, I wouldn't have, if I'd have been um, the sort of person who'd always worked in early years and come up through the early years sector, 
and thought, diff thought always around these are the targets we collect and this is how we design the system, then that's how we would have written the devolution bill, but I didn't. Um, I've got a brain where I need to go and read everything. So I went and read about child development, early attachment theory, what underpins those basic principles, the best evidence-based interventions in the world that have worked for early years, then the statutory code that the UK then operates in for early years and synthesise that into a very simple seven-stage model. And we wouldn't have had that in Greater Manchester had I not thought differently. And it was seen as, it was seen as an absolute um, strength. Um, the people I worked with valued me um, and valued my way of thinking enormously. And since I've had my late diagnosis, because that was in 2012, 13, you know what I mean? I've come out to lots of those people. And it's interesting because they almost have this Scooby-Doo reaction of like, sure, kind of thing where they go, <laughs> oh my God, really? I'm like, really? And they go, isn't it fantastic? And they're like, blooming heck, it really is. It, it, mm. it really is. I'm like, and don't I just prove the point that diversity and different ways of thinking is an absolute strength? Yeah. So my my thing now, my thing in my 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 job is to say in Greater Manchester, there are 25,000 children and young people with education, health and care plans. So that doesn't even include everyone who's neurodivergent, does it? Because if you're wide enough for sense support, usually when we say uh, one, one in eight in, in mainstream could have a special educational need. So one in eight is. So it's just like, well, um, all those can't go through that system at the end of it and not have a job, not have a career, not have an opportunity when we have so much potential to give. So my, my call now is if we're levelling up in Greater Manchester, it has to include those 25,000 children and young people who are absolutely superb. Yeah. And if I give an example, um, in our new bridge group, we've had a group of 20 young people um, just last month go to Chicago to Apple headquarters because we do all of our teaching using ICT and they won the Chicago schools competition against all of the schools to design the best app that Apple may now implement at Apple headquarters in Chicago so <laughs> absolutely superb knocking it out of the ballpark because we think differently that's amazing that really is amazing um so you you mentioned earlier about um people who've got a late diagnosis but i guess it could be people of any age with a diagnosis but i guess late late people more because of the the change um and and them having to to speak to employers i mean what would you say is the the best way to to approach that if um if you was listening to this and 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 you're go about to go into that situation i would i would say to anyone you know what i mean we all know what the equalities act says and various things around you know what i mean you've got a right to request reasonable adjustments and if you've just started a brand new job if you're within the first 13 weeks of that job you can apply to the department for worker pensions to be assessed and for any equipment and adaptations to be put in place for that. Um, so they're, 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 they're the obvious things. But also, only you will know yourself what the culture of the organisation is where you work. And actually, if it's already difficult at the moment, and you already, you already know they're struggling with some of, the, some of your differences, however they might not be able to articulate them, 
um, you you may want to think long and hard whether that's somewhere where you would necessarily want to stay in the long term. Because there are, I mean, you know, you mean I'm I'm so lucky to work at, at, at Newbridge Group. Um, and the, the chief exec there, Graham Quinn, didn't even bat an eyelid when I told him I'd been late diagnosed because he'd knew me, he'd known me beforehand for four years. Um, and he, he he just thinks it's brilliant. He almost laughs. Oh my god, we talk about late diagnosed, then there's you at 49. <laughs> <laughs> And we laugh about it. And it, that's brilliant for me. And he's like, you know, he's so proud of me and what I've done and what I've achieved and how I got through mainstream. And my God, what a story. Do you know what I mean? And, and a role model for, for women and girls in particular who were diagnosed. And I'm really, I'm really proud around that. But I know, I know that it's not necessarily like that everywhere um, at all. And that, uh, you know, you can find good and bad um, organisations, but you'll know, you'll know what's right for you. And the, the key the key thing is, do you need to disclose at work because you need to have reasonable adjustments or not if you're unsure what your work, work environment would be, would be my, my best advice. But for me now, I'm now out, out, proud, proud. Someone has to be in a senior leadership role. So even if I left Newbridge and went somewhere else now, it would only take two minutes to Google me and you'd know that about me. Yeah, but yeah. I kind of think, it shouldn't be for those 25,000 children and young people to enter the world of work and it all to be on their shoulders in their early careers, swimming the way through. Uh, people with prejudice saying, I don't want to know that, or you can't say that, or you can't be in work, or, or you know what I mean, or it's difficult, or, or, or gaslighting, or anything that. If that just does not feel cognizant with my values. So it goes back to me being the little campaign about anti-power, I think. You know what I mean? And Rainbow Warrior and all that, age 16. That's me. That's my personality. I'm, I'm Greta 1.2 away. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It comes to things like this. So for me, I I have to be out because I can't lead a dishonest life. Yeah. No, no, no. That's, uh, that's amazing. And so, okay, then, again, flipping things around. What advice would you give to employers? Someone's come to you and they've said, you know, I've worked for you for X amount of time. Um, I've just had a diagnosis and I thought I'd let you know that that I'm autistic or I've got autism. Yeah. What advice would you give to employers? Well, the employers, I would say, don't just go uh, to HR and look for whatever policy guidance you've got on the Equalities Act. That's not the best starting point. The best starting point is to firstly acknowledge that with the person who's told you said, Do you know what, thank, thank you for sharing that with me. I feel privileged that you have shared that information with me. How was the experience for you? Um, and how can we help you? How can we help you best? And you might not be able to tell me now, and it may change as the months go by and we vary how we can help you best. And that's all fine. That's it. Yeah. That, that for me would be it because you've got empathy. You've got the acknowledgement that this is a life-changing moment for someone. It's just not a moment in time. And that the best thing you can do is person-centered. And that just like running a business is dynamic, running a business and supporting someone who's neurodiverse is just, or neurodivergent is, has to be just as dynamic and adaptable. So go at their pace. So sometimes they might be like super high focus, knocking it out of the block, finishing all the work, 
do you know what I mean? Curly, blah, blah, blah. And, and being whatever. And others, they might be really, really struggling because there's wider contextual factors you're yeah. unaware of. And and therefore, they just, they want to be working in a quiet place. They want to do some work working from home. And it's all fine because all you're offering is a dynamic approach that's person-centered. That's mm -hmm. it. Anyone can do that. It doesn't cost a lot of money at all. And it... And look, kind of looking at it, I don't see any downside to to an employer for having one of their employees come to them and say this, um, because if they're if they're performing amazingly and they're performing really good and you're happy with that, well, they're still the same person. Exactly. So that's not going to change. Um, it might take a slight dip whilst they're going through and accepting the process themselves yeah you know it's going to come back um, totally and if someone's not performing well well are they not performing well because of the surroundings and yep. like you said would they then when you then move them to a quiet space would they then start to perform better when they're starting to work at home and it kind of gives you a lot of options be able to help them improve which you didn't know were there in the first place exactly and for me it's like encouraging self-regulation isn't it so you know this will work for you blah um you you know what I mean and some of the performance issues might be there's far too much inference and knowing looks and you know this this kind of I was almost that, that, that um you know what I mean that dark art of I don't even know what it is you know what I mean the kind of like inference and you just know what we want you to do by osmosis or whatever it is yeah that clarity of instructions so one of the things I learned very early on when I first started in the city council and it's a great top tip and it was only because an RAD was superb Sue tricks love it a bit but Janice used to say Susan talks at 100 miles an hour you won't get it all down so I always when I work with her say let me check is this what you've asked me to do X, Y, Z. This is why X, Y, Z. And this is when it needs to be in X, Y, Z. So I thought, that's brilliant. And I did that with everybody and have done ever since. Yeah. And then we're all clear about what we're being asked to do. Hmm. Yeah, no, that is good. That is good. So whilst we're on top tips and just before we uh, wrap up, because I feel like we could probably talk all day, but <laughs> obviously we need to make sure we are finishing at some point. Um what what would be the the biggest piece of advice you would um you would give to someone my biggest piece of advice is we get one life and life um you know what i mean can be short it can go in a flash look at the pandemic and what happened to my dad and i think the thing that i've learned is i can either leave and leave live a life in the shadows and not know or or know and then not tell anyone or I can go out there in the blazing sun and enjoy my life and go, I refuse to take up even less space so that people with prejudice can take up even more space. This is my space and I own it and I will enjoy my life. And I will be, always say I am proud to be autistic. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. So that's all we've got time for today on the Awful Inclusion pod. Um, thank you very much for for listening, and thank you very much, Shirley, for coming on and uh, and speaking about uh, autism and your late diagnosis today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the All for Inclusion podcast. We'd love you to subscribe and to help other podcast listeners find us more easily. Please leave us a five-star rating and a review. And of course, feel free to pass the pod by sharing it with your family and friends. Remember, the podcast is available every Wednesday and keep an eye out for additional bonus episodes. See you next time on the All for Inclusion podcast.